have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. It's amazing how far water will travel once it enters someplace on the roof. It, it, it's always surprised me. It's rare that you find a leak exactly where a hole may be or where there's a bad shingle, for example. So my, my guess is if you continue to fight this and you know your basement is dry, uh, that you've got a, a, a problem elsewhere. It's either from a plumbing line or it's coming from that roof. And since you know you have some roof problems, I'd venture to say when you re-roof that house, you're going to find the source and you're going to eliminate this. Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's here to help you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowner. He's a Class A licensed contractor who's designed and built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects as well as single-family homes up and down the East Coast. Ken is here this weekend ready to take your calls at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And you can email your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. We're going to start out by asking you a few questions. I want you to be challenged a little bit here, so pay attention. First, do you have mineral deposits that build up around the faucets on your kitchen sink or your lavatory? Do you have rust stains that are visible on the outside walls if you're irrigating yard or landscape material? How about a high chlorine taste or odor? If you come out of the shower feeling like somebody just poured a bottle of Clorox over you? Well, I know I have from time to time. And there's some of you out there dealing with well water that may have sulfur water and odors and smells that's very difficult for you to cope with. And others on well water, they're dealing with sediment and various deposits that you find in those little strainers in your kitchen faucets. And you also see them sometimes in bottoms of water if you don't have those strainers in place in your glasses. Well, that little quiz was to challenge you a little bit and think about your drinking water in your home and in your office environment. Now, folks, I have to tell you before we go much further with this that we have some of the safest drinking water anywhere in the world here in the United States. Our municipalities do a wonderful job of getting rid of bacteria and filtering what they are supposed to legally out of it. Many of you on well water certainly have those wells tested for bacteria at the time they're put in. But once we have water service to our home, whether it's well or domestic water, we rarely think about it beyond that. And the things I've just described to you, rust stains on the outside if you're irrigating a yard and that water ends up on your house, if you've got mineral deposits on the inside, this is a sign of a water condition that municipalities do not treat, they're not required to treat, and that many of you don't deal with when it comes to your own domestic well. We're going to talk a little bit about today about water softeners. Now, water softeners do far more than what we typically think of when we refer to just a water softener. And they do, not only can they create, they get rid of some of the minerals that you're seeing with these deposits that build up in and around your faucets, but beyond that, they can preserve things you don't see. You have some very small lines that go to ice makers. They may only be a quarter of an inch, for example, in diameter. You have small lines that go into the dishwasher that feed water within that, and you have very small openings in the spray heads on your dishwasher. These mineral deposits over time clog up those openings. They clog up those lines. They don't work well, and in some cases, they don't work at all. But you can deal with that. The chlorine, the rust stains may not be an issue to many of you like the mineral deposits are. So let's talk a little bit about types of water softeners. You send me emails, you call me from time to time, and you say, what do I do? What do I need? 
And the intent today is simply one to cause you to think about your drinking water, the safety of your drinking water, and to think about some of the issues that it may be causing for you within your home or the pipes or the appliances within the home, but also to give you some very basics so you can ask the right questions of your dealer or the people you're working with if you're in the market for a water softener. As I said, if you have any of the items that I've described above, you want to pay close attention to this. There are four basic types of water softening or water softening methods, and they're used for different purposes, and they're common. Some are more common in different regions of the country. So those of you listening to us in the Midwest may find that one is better suited for your type of water and the hardness of water than those of you listening to us in Alabama, for example. But first, we're going to talk about a salt-free water softener, which uses a catalytic media. Now, the system requires no monthly maintenance. It doesn't require any additional monthly cost. You're not buying chemicals for it. It softens the water without the use of salt or potassium. And the salt-free softener leaves, of course, all the essential minerals in the drinking water, which really is good for us. Now, these can be effective, but you need to do your own investigating work based on your living area. Again, I'm going to say this two or three times because not every softener works in every area with all types of water properly. There's also a salt-based, which is probably the most common around this country, a salt-based water softener, and that's an ion exchange. Now, the some of the advantages of using that, of course, is it has a longer life for appliances, including things I just talked about, your washing machines, your dishwashers, your water heaters. It uses allows you to use less cleaning de- uh, detergents and soap and so forth than just leaving the hard water. So I'm just giving you a quick rundown. All of this information will be available, by the way, at our website, kenthecontractor.com. And then many of you, especially if you live in coastal areas where you may have saltwater intrusion, are very familiar with what's called a reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis is an ultrafine filtration system that's under pressure, and it will remove salt from water. It's a very expensive system. But, again, I know we have some listening to us in those areas. And then there is what some of you have called me about and asked me questions on called a magnetic water softener, which uses magnets. I'll tell you, many of these I have never used. I'm telling you that industry-wide, these are the types that are available around the country, and I want you to be knowledgeable of them, and I want you to be able to ask your dealers questions about the different types and what is right for you. Now, again, I said some of these are restricted by the hardness of your water. If the water is too hard, some will not work, and others will be too costly for those of you that have just a minimal hardness of water. But I want to talk specifically about the salt-based units because those are the most common. Sodium chloride is a naturally occurring mineral that's found in the earth. It comes from underground. It's mined in salt mines, and it's most commonly used in water softeners. Now, the sodium chloride is typically used also because it's a lower price. But there's another type that's available. This is what I happen to use personally, is a potassium chloride. It's also naturally occurring, and it works in softeners the same way sodium chloride does, but it replaces the hard water minerals with potassium instead of sodium. Now, potassium chloride, I think most of us know, is an essential nutrient for human health. So it's certainly not going to be harmful to you. And it's exchanging, as I said, or if you, it's extracting the potassium chloride. Uh, when, I want to say this, the potassium is going to be more costly because it costs more money to get out of the ground. Now, that turns a lot of people off. In some cases, I've paid almost double for potassium what I have paid for sodium chloride, but I think it's a healthier product for me, for my family to be using. So when you're looking at water softeners, 
since the majority of these are salt-based. Ask your dealer about this. Also, you want to talk to them about the level of maintenance. Do you have the infrastructure? Are you going to have to add piping to get to it? Is this going to sit in a garage? Do you need to have an enclosed area for temperature control? Are you going to have to add heat? There's so many things that come into play when you're adding a water softener to a system. There are no questions that should be left off the table. If it's in your mind, you need to be asking about it before you purchase a water softener. The other thing you need to think about is how much maintenance are you willing to put into it. I personally use a Kinetico water softener because I'm a pretty lazy fellow when it comes to maintenance, and I want to put something in and have it work over and over again. I use a water softener that has no electricity. It has no batteries, nothing to wind up, no springs in it. I simply put... The potassium in it about twice a year, it does everything through normal water flow and have great water. So I want to recommend to you, you think about all of these elements, maintenance, whether salt's an issue to you. If it is, consider potassium as an alternative, especially if you're on a low-sodium diet or you have an issue with blood pressure. Coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson answers your questions. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email him questions to our website. That's Ken the Contractor. Dot com. Stay with us. More is coming right up. This is Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. Along with Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt, and Ken is here every week at this time dealing with the issues that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Let's go to South Bend, Indiana right now, and David has a question for Ken. Hi, David. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. I just had a quick question. I, uh, one of my tiles in my bathtub fell down. And I realized that it was plastic, and underneath it is almost like a cardboard material. It's not directly onto the wall or the plaster of the bathroom wall. Is that common practice, and should, or should I just take the whole thing down? How old is it? Oh, I don't know. Our house is built in the 40s. This is probably not the original material. The fact that you indicate that there's plastic or what you perceive to be plastic and almost a cardboard material behind it, you may have a tile that's been installed over old plaster or perhaps even another layer of tile material that was originally installed. Anytime you start having product fall off the wall, one of the things I'd want to look at is why did it fall off? Was it poor workmanship, especially if it was a newer project? But something that's this old, I'd be a little concerned about any adhesives, mortar that may be behind it, any of those items that has just deteriorated, and whether or not there's actually water that's getting behind it. Because over a long period of time, that happens and it breaks down the substrate, the structure or the, the backing that's behind the materials. So if you have this coming off voluntarily, meaning you're not in there with a hammer doing some other work, <laughs> then, then I seriously would be looking at uh, perhaps repairing the entire area. Now, th- this is a okay. complete shower stall, or is this also bathroom walls uh, around tub and so forth? Yes, it's a bathroom wall also. Okay, and these are individual tiles of what size? Um, I, I want to say orange tile. Okay. And are they in, in probably an area that's exposed to the greatest amount of moisture from, say, a shower head? Yes, they are. Well, again, I'd go back to my original comment. When you start to see that happen, that tells you that there's more going on behind the scenes, literally on the back side, than you probably can imagine. That can create some additional damage, some rot in the wood framing, perhaps subfloor material. I would be looking at taking it off and resurfacing that area. And today, fortunately, you have a lot of options in what you can put in around both your tub and your shower, some very inexpensive, and they really run the gamut to the sky's the limit, depending on how much you want to spend. Okay. Well, thanks for the insight, Ken. Thank you. We appreciate your call, and thanks for listening to us. 
Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank you, David. And don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. Ken, this email comes to us out of uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia, from Leicester, and it follows up on a conversation we had a couple weeks ago about a certain type of fencing that could be used to cut down on noise. And in the area that uh, Lester is in, he's got some major interstate noise that he's trying to find some way to block out. He does, and I think for most of us, when we think fencing, it's an area that we want to contain our dog, our kids, maybe create a little privacy in the backyard. But, Lester, first, we appreciate you listening to the show because you picked up on this in a segment a few weeks back, and you're in Fredericksburg, Virginia. You say, recently I heard you and Jim speak about a sound barrier fence. Now, to be clear, I didn't specifically refer to this as a sound barrier fence, but what I'm going to talk to you about does have sound qualities, and that's what makes this rather unique. You go on to tell us that you do live in an area with not only highway noise but industrial noise, and you also, to add to this, which is the reason I think your question is quite valid, is that you work nights and sleep days, and that's very difficult because most towns especially more metropolitan areas like Fredericksburg, Virginia, have ordinances against loud noises beyond certain hours at night. But for those of you on night shifts, this can be difficult when you're dealing with all of it in the daytime. The product that I talked about is one that I discovered it. It was released last year at the International Builder Show. It's a product called Simtech Fencing. That's S-I-M-T-E-K Fencing Materials. Now, this is a very lightweight fence material. It's designed to look like a stone wall. It's lightweight to the point that a couple of people can pick it up and move it around. Each panel weighs only about 60 pounds. It's extremely durable. It resists everything from golf balls to baseball bats, and it has a substantial sound deadening coefficient or, or factor or quality about that, and that's what we talked about. We're finding some municipalities and talking to the Simtech folks are actually considering this. They're looking at the test results right now to use it for sound deadening around highways and for other environments. Now, from an industrial standpoint, I've talked to some of my clients, manufacturers about it, where they need to reduce noise around HVAC compressors or other loud pieces of equipment that this fence is ideal to contain that noise. Now, Simtech fencing is available to the general public. It's available through the Home Depot distribution network nationwide. It's not stocked at Home Depot. It's a special order item. But if you go in the fencing department and you ask for Simtech fence panels, first you're going to be able to find literature there. Secondly, you'll be able to talk to them about what you need. And you're going to find it very easy to install. It's also affordable, meaning that it's not one of these that's the highest end of everything you can buy out there. It's probably, in my experience, about mid-range price-wise. I think this will solve your problem. You can also go to my website, KenTheContractor.com, and find out more about Simtech fencing. And we've got an email from Lewis out of Amherst, Virginia, who listens to our program on WAMV 1420 AM, and he's got a loose banister in a home that's over 100 years old. And his email is really short and simple, and sometimes I really like these. We can get right to it. Lewis, you say, can anything be done to repair or tighten an old loose banister? And you're referring to it as are the banister and the end post. You said you're talking about the one at the bottom of the stair. That's the beginning post, or commonly known in the industry as a newel post. That's the starting post at the base to most stairs. And you don't have to be in a 100-year-old home to have that loose because I want to tell you, what do we do? And all of you that have stairs are thinking about what I'm fixing to say. I know that's the first thing we grab as we go up the stairs. The kids swing on it. We swing on it coming and going up and down. That post is bound to become loose. And if you've got one that's 100 years old, my hat's off to you. It's performed well. Bottom line is, if it's that old, it's not going to have some of the modern adjustment devices that 
we have today because the way these are routed and assembled at the plant and if they're built in the field, and I'm saying this for the benefit of those of you with newer uh, handrails and stairs, that you will find typically there is a bolt that can be tightened underneath the rail, and in some cases there is uh, superfluous trim, meaning that it's just that, it's decorative trim. It has nothing to do with the structural integrity that can be removed and bolts tightened to better secure that newel post or the rail that's secured to the top of it. When you're dealing with the old handmade rails such as you are, Lewis, you will find that it, if you have a good structure behind it, if you're not dealing with any rot, that you can drill holes into that. And this is what I recommend. Drill. Don't take nails. A lot of people do that, and they destroy the old wood. But you want to drill a very small pilot hole in that, and then you can use trim screws and attach that back into the structure and then putty that hole or drill it large enough to put a wood plug in it and restain it or paint it the color that you have now. This will make it very sound. It will perform quite well. It will outlast the next generation of kids, and you may find, though, that if it's extremely loose, you might need to put two or three of those in. But don't use a standard screw, whatever you do. Remember what I said. It's a trim screw, very small head, very tight threads, very small screw in diameter, but drill the hole first or you will crack and split the wood. It's the best way I know to take care of these 100-year-old posts. These are not uncommon, especially for those of you living in the Virginia region and other areas that have been settled for many, many decades around this country. Good luck with your venture, Lewis, and we appreciate you listening and writing to us. I'll tell you what, you'll notice a world of difference once it gets fixed. It's one of those small, little nagging things that when you finally get it taken care of, it's worth a million bucks. Yeah, it really is. You wouldn't pay a million for it, but it seems like it's worth that. It's a nuisance, and it's one of those things we deal with in our home every single day, and we don't think about it, but Lewis is obviously aggravated enough that he says, what do I do? That's right. And that's one of the reasons why the show is here, to help you deal with these issues and help you get them done right, and hopefully get done the first time. We'll take a break, and then we'll continue with more. You can reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or email your questions to his website, kenthecontractor.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is here, and he's here to answer questions about your home inside or out. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or email your questions to kenthecontractor.com. Also, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. It is time now for this week's edition of One on One with Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels. Joining me now is Vanessa Troyer. Now, Vanessa is CEO and co-founder of the Architectural Mailboxes. Vanessa, welcome to the program. Thank you. So happy to be here. I had opportunity to see so many of your products at the 2013 International Builder Show, and I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to have you on the show and let you share this information with our listeners. When and how did Architectural Mailboxes get started? Basically, in 1999, a parcel was delivered to our home, and it was stolen right off our porch. And that's what really prompted our products that can receive parcels. At the time, we felt that everybody would be receiving these large computers delivered to their home. So that's when we developed the elephant trunk parcel drop. But unfortunately, we were a little too early for that. So we shelved that item. People weren't shopping online as of yet. And we decided, well, people are ordering through mail order. So we'll start off with a mailbox 
which is our Oasis series, that can receive a parcel delivered by the Postal Service. Uh, that mailbox today is the number one selling locking mailbox in the U.S. Uh, because it was first to market and it has a patented parcel delivery door. For most people, they don't think about a mailbox, especially if they buy an existing home. It's typically there. Mailboxes today have become as important as most any other aspect of our home for two main reasons. One was security because they wouldn't fit in the traditional mailbox. But you just talked about the Oasis series, the most popular that you have, that's a locking mailbox. Now, the fact that it's popular tells me that has to be a size and a price point that works for every consumer across the nation. Absolutely. And it isn't just a parcel they can steal off your porch. It's your identity. So much bigger things at risk here. I think if anybody has been through having their credit card cloned and perhaps their identity stolen, we'll find spending anywhere from 50 to to $100 on a locking mailbox is fully worth it for them to protect their identity, to protect their mail and parcels. Now, are there any issues with the U.S. Postal Service putting mail in or using or authorizing these locking mailboxes? Any special procedures? that a homeowner has to go through? Yes. A homeowner has to provide a USPS-approved mailbox if it's going to the curb, be installed at the curb. If it's being installed on the house next to the front door, it doesn't require that certification. However, it needs to be safe, meaning free from sharp edges, large enough to receive and accommodate the mail that the, the homeowner receives. And so most homeowners go out and reach out looking for a mailbox, and they're buying them from people like us who are certified. And it's a safe way to purchase a wall mount mailbox as well because we follow all the same processes for our post mount mailboxes which are required to be postal service approved for our wall mounts. And a lot of you are listening right now saying what's the difference? The difference is the boxes on your home are on private property. They are your box. Clearly they're still your box when they're out at the curb but you're in the right of way and the U.S. Postal Service has something to say about height, location, how they're mounted and so forth in the right of way. But those that are mounted out there that you sell are U.S. Postal Service approved. That is correct. The post office has chosen that if it's at the curb, it needs to be a certified mailbox. What that means is the process for the manufacturer is you submit drawings, they look at the drawings, they approve the drawings or disapprove and give you pointers on what to come back with. From there, you make a production unit, you have to tool up, and after that, you send it to an independent testing lab. And you'd be absolutely floored to find out that we do things like salt fog, corrosion, impact tests, replicating basically a teenager with a baseball that. It can wow. only deflect so much. The door has to be able to close. Um, a wasp test, meaning like you can't have too many openings. Do you imagine all the carriers in the U.S. delivering, opening up a door, and if there's a lot of holes and, and gaps within the design, a wasp could make a nest in there. Imagine putting your hand in that to deliver mail. So they've thought just about everything. I mean, they've been doing this for many, many years. There's a lot that goes into a mailbox before it ever hits the shelf. And I can assure Maybe. you that starting with me, we don't think about those things because you provide the quality product. We buy it. It's installed and it functions for us. Now, I want to go to a product that I was really intrigued with that you call the elephant trunk box. Well, the elephant trunk is the original product that we launched our company with the idea of everybody was going to be shopping online. This is not intended to replace a mailbox. It is intended to receive your parcels. 
And as you know, and everybody else that, that's online, it's just continuing to grow. People are still buying online, and things are becoming more routine. For instance, seniors are getting prescriptions. The last thing they want is to come home and find it's been stolen. It could get in the wrong hands. So we felt that it was time to relaunch the elephant trunk with a redesign that it could receive multiple parcels. So it has a large door that is a retrieval door. It has like an inner drum where you put the parcel in, the carrier, it is UPS, FedEx, DHL, a courier can deliver to it. It drops into the bottom of the box. And when you return home at the end of your day, you open up your elephant trunk just like you'd open up your mailbox. You check and see if there's anything inside of it. And this has been a huge success. We've been written up in just about every publication, trade publication, New York Times, television, you name it, because it really does solve a need. Over and above security and what they call porch pirating, where these pirates steal off your porch, there's other conditions that really make it important to have your medicines delivered and not on your porch, and it snows. If you live in Michigan or in parts of the Northeast where you're just getting pummeled in snow, you don't want to come home and find soggy packages, items ruined. It also has the capabilities of return something. A lot of times we'll buy something. Let's say you buy a pair of shoes, you try them on, they're way too tight. Most retailers provide a return service label that you would put right back on that package and have to drive it to UPS. Well, if it was received in your elephant trunk, you can send it out with your elephant trunk by leaving it in the drum and placing the return partition so that it doesn't drop into the box when you close the door. So the next time your carrier is out to deliver, he'll open your door and he will find he has an outgoing parcel. So it really does solve a lot of problems. Well, and in today's world, as you said, with things disappearing, people following delivery trucks, nobody's home, they walk off almost as fast as they were placed there. Security is important outside our home as well as inside, and these are things that we're spending a lot of money on. And a very valid point you bring up, it's not just about the possibility of an ID theft, if you will, somebody stealing your identity, but for your health. There are many people that require medicines on a regular basis, and you need to know that you may not be home, but when they get there, they're secure, and you're going to have the medicines that you need. We talked about the Oasis series, which is so popular across the country. We talked about the elephant trunk for parcels and so forth. Where do people go to buy these products, and where can they find the full line that you're offering? That's a great question. Well, our products are sold inside Lowe's stores and Lowe's.com, Home Depot on the shelf as well as HomeDepot.com. And Amazon carries pretty much our entire product line. They actually inventory it because I believe we're probably their number one mailbox suppliers. They can Google architectural mailboxes. They can go right onto our website, look up their city, and find a location near them. We've been speaking with Vanessa Troyer. Vanessa, again, is the CEO and co-founder with Architectural Mailboxes. Vanessa, this has been such valuable information. I thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, you're so welcome, Ken. I hope your listeners know a little bit more about mailboxes now. Thank you. I'll tell you what, there are a lot of you probably like Ken and I sitting here in the studio thinking, what a great idea, particularly with all the stuff that folks are buying online. If you want more information, just Google Architectural Mailboxes. We've got to take a quick break. We'll come back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here answering the questions that are important to today's homeowner. And if you've got a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email us questions to the website, KenTheContractor.com. And this email comes to us from Samuel in Ortonville, Minnesota. It's a 
I only caught some of your comments one morning on KDIO about a new metal roof over a roof or ceiling rafter and getting extra insulation installed. said, I need to replace my roof this year, and this interests me. Can you discuss this again? Well, first off, Sammy, we appreciate you listening to us on KDIO. And I, I was talking to them on a, uh, it happened to be a morning segment. I was doing an interview with the show host at that time. And one of them raised the question, said he was in the process of uh, putting a metal roof on his home. He had vaulted ceilings, which means that the, the truss or the framing member that his current roof is attached to is insulated, and on the bottom side, he has drywall on the interior. Unlike a traditional truss where there is a cavity, an opportunity to get a lot of insulation in place, when you're dealing with, say, a 2x10 or a 2x12, you only have the depth of that framing cavity to install insulation. And typically in a 2x12, you may be looking at an R value of 38 for the insulation that you can put in. And what we know today is that as we continue to increase the R value in our walls and our roofs, we increase the energy efficiency of our home. And that means, obviously, less electricity used, less fuel oil, less other items that we, is necessary to heat our house, and it keeps us comfortable longer for fewer dollars. So what I was talking to them about was roofing over and how you can install a metal roof and install additional insulation. And if you're interested in this, and for those of you that say this sounds like something I might want to consider, if you're already thinking about a metal roof, first you want to install furring strips. Now, that may be two-by-twos. It could be two-by-fours. Your local building officials or architect may have something to say about it based on your wind zone, uh, where you happen to live in terms of snow loads. You always want to check with them, but I'm giving you the concept. And the concept is simply to install furring strips of sufficient thickness that you can install a high highly dense, rigid insulation board between those furring strips before you install either sheathing if it's required by your particular roof system or install the standing seam metal roof panels directly to those furring strips. Now, for example, if you install simply a two-inch furring strip, you can use a product uh, that Dow makes called Thermax. Other manufacturers produce something similar that is a rigid insulation board. That two-inch board has an R value of 13. That says you could take an R38 uh, cavity, and you could bring that up to an R51, which is very substantial. That's a, probably about a 30% or better increase in insulation value, which will relate to a savings on your operating cost. Now, this isn't something I recommend for any normal homeowner unless you have some construction skills and the proper safety harnesses and devices to be tied off working on that roof. I think this is a job for a pro or at least for you to team up with a pro and be doing this safely. But that's what I was discussing on KDIO, and I appreciate you asking us about it, and I hope if that's of interest to you that you'll pursue this a little further with your local suppliers and perhaps with your local contractors. And if you're going to bid this out and go to a pro, be sure you get at least three bids from qualified folks and you set your own spec so that you're bidding the same thing across the board to all people and that you make a good comparison, you make a good buy, and then check on references from each of those contractors. Good luck to you, Samuel. All right, uh, what do we got for our handy website of the week? You know, this is a site that's really directed to one product, but it's directed to probably most of America because the majority of us have dryers somewhere in our home. And one thing we never think about is that vent on the back side of the dryer, that pipe or tube, some of you call, that goes from the dryer to the exterior discharge. You shove the dryer back against the wall. Then we wonder why in another place maybe it took 30 minutes to dry a load. Now it's taking an hour. And that's probably because that dryer hose is actually crimped. And the more bends you put in it, 
the less effective your dryer is. Regardless of whether it's gas or whether it's electric, the more bends you have in that hose on the backside or even in the discharge system. If you discharge direct through the wall, that is probably the most ideal you can have because you have very few bends and you only have the short hose coming from the dryer out. But there is a company that manufactures what's called dryer box. And dryer box is just what it sounds like. It's a box that recesses in the wall that allows you to connect the dryer to the vent line without that sharp turn that going that goes up or down in the wall. Again, if you vent directly to the outside, that's not bad at all. That's the best thing you can do. But I want you to look at this site because you'll not only find that the dryer vent can save space, it can eliminate a lot of the crimping you have on the backside. It's user-friendly. It's easy to install. And that's dryerbox.com, D-R-Y-E-R-B-O-X.com. You'll find the link on my website, kenthecontractor.com, as well. You'll find a few other accessories, including lint detectors, which can call, help eliminate fires. A lot of things that will be important to you. Dryerbox.com. Right, let's try to sneak in a quick call here with Rob. He's got a question about metal roofing that you were just talking about. Rob, go right ahead with your question for Ken. My question is this. I, down in Texas, which is a little different than here, of course, but I have a house down there that has a vaulted ceiling in it. It's got four by eight, um, what do you call it, laminated structural beams in it. Okay. And, uh, so you got LV, got, yeah, they're LVLs. Okay. It's got uh, two by six tongue and groove seizing, I guess. All right, yeah, that'd be your decking material. You're looking at that. That forms your deck, yeah. and you're seeing that on the bottom side. That's your finish? That's the finish, right. Okay. Uh-huh. And only on top of that, they only put uh, a half-inch Celotex, and then they put a tin roof right over top of it. So down there, it's a you know, pretty big heat sink. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and I'm just curious what the best is. It, would it be better to insulate that thing from the inside or take that roof off and, and do something from the outside. I'm not sure how to All right, you, you, rectify that problem. You really have two options, and one, the first one I'd say depends on how you want to see the finish on the inside. The fact that you have a tongue and groove deck that was put in as an architectural feature over those LVL beams that you're looking at up there, if that doesn't bother you to cover that up, you can insulate that cavity and then come back with drywall or some other, even a wood product on the bottom. You can go back with a one-by tongue and groove on the bottom and have a similar look. Uh, that's going to cost a decent amount of money to do that, but you're going to save on your operating costs, and you're going to be a lot more comfortable, especially in the season that you're trying to fire up the air conditioning units, which is most of the time, I think, in Texas. But if you want to preserve that look, you really like those LVL beams and you like the, the tongue and groove showing from the top side, then I think you're right on track. If the, the roof especially is screwed down, now if it's nailed down, this is going to be more difficult to salvage. But if the roof is screwed down, those panels can be removed, and I would look at adding a furring strip or going right over the uh, the therm- or the sheeting that you have in place, the insulation board, and increase that. But frankly, for the, the increased volume, I would probably be looking at adding a furring strip over that where I could move beyond even an R13 and maybe get up into the R20 range, R21, something along those lines with what you have. Okay, very good. Yeah, this uh, beam, by the way, are uh, four feet off center. So, And that would be typical of an LVL, which is a structural lumber. It's a manufactured beam as opposed to standard uh, milled lumber. Right. But those would give okay. you two options. Both are going to cost you a little money, but it's going to help you on the long in the long run. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Okay. All right, I appreciate your help. 
thank you for the, thank you for the call. Thanks, Rob. We appreciate it. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You can email your questions to our website, which is KenTheContractor.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers and friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor. That'll wrap up this hour of Ken the Contractor, the program that provides professional answers. Don't forget, if you've got a question, Ken's here every weekend answering your questions. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.